The Guardian. Every day, we place our empty milk bottles on the doorstep, knowing that by tomorrow, our empties will have been replaced by full bottles of milk. In 1921, residents in the small town of Swathling in southern England were shocked to find the milk bottles on their doorsteps had been vandalised. With the foil caps pierced and the valuable cream on the top gone. But how much do we really know about the milkman's job? Fingers were pointed at possible culprits, but as the wave of cream theft swept across the country and eventually reached Europe, it was birds that were found to be the thieves, including the great tit and the blue tit. Fast forward to 2014, and researchers found that different populations of great tits showed different variations in this kind of feeding behaviour, leading scientists to conclude that these birds were able to transmit cultural behaviours. But how does this kind of cultural transmission differ from that found in humans? And what does this tell us about general intelligence? Fundamentally, how important is culture to our own evolutionary history? We're really coming together uh, with scientists from many different fields and finding really compelling and provocative evidence for thinking in animals and thinking in ways that we've never imagined. Human minds are not just products of biological evolution that have been fashioned for culture, that they're actually fashioned by culture that our culture, perhaps for our species, and, and maybe one or two other species too, culture has transformed the evolutionary process. I'm Nicola Davis. This is Science Weekly. I, I know exactly, yeah, I've got a, got a conference. To help me try and answer some of these questions, I sat down in the studio with someone who has spent much of his academic career exploring the interplay between culture and the mind. My name is Kevin Leyland. I'm Professor of uh, Behavioural and Evolutionary Biology at the University of St Andrews. Kevin is also the author of a new book, Darwin's Unfinished Symphony. And it's with this new book that we started. Kevin, your new book is called Darwin's Unfinished Symphony. And it, it looks at sort of biological evolution and, and culture and where culture fits in with that. But perhaps we should just start with what do we mean by culture? Well, um, by culture... I'm thinking as a biologist in really very general terms about our ability to acquire knowledge and skills from other individuals, social learning, to express that knowledge in our tools, our technology, our engineering, our behavior. And critically, I think, when it comes to understanding human culture, to sort of build on that reservoir of shared knowledge iteratively, fashioning ever more efficient and diverse solutions to life's challenges, like a, a sharper cutting tool or a more stable boat. Kevin, Darwin also grappled with this, grappled with the role of culture and, and how we ended up with the wide range of skills that we ended up with. How far did he get with reconciling evolution by natural selection and culture? So, um, I mean, that's a, that's a really great question. I think that the challenge that my book really tries to address is understanding the evolutionary origins of the, of the human mind and its expression in culture. And these are really some of the most distinctive and extraordinary characteristics of humanity, our, our intelligence, our creativity, our language, our, our large-scale cooperation. 
And Darwin sought to try and understand those issues. Those are exactly the topics that he addresses in The Descent of Man. But as he himself confesses, his understanding of the, of the topic was, um, you know, to quote him, incomplete and fragmentary. He was, in many respects, very modest about what he had achieved. He saw himself as just beginning the investigation of those issues. And the real challenge here, which I think, uh, you know, it's taken a long time for the scientific community to acknowledge, is that we humans, in these respects, really look remarkably different from other animals. Uh, I mean, I can give you a couple of examples, if you like. We, um, if you think of our densities, we exist at densities that way exceed what would be typical for an animal of our size by several orders of magnitude. Think about our ecological success. We've managed to spread around the globe to virtually every country, every terrestrial landmass, including some incredibly inhospitable regions like the Arctic and the deserts, and forge a living there and thrive there. And then, you know, we've got all these magnificent um, works of art and architecture, music and dance, magnificent pieces of technology, putting a man on the moon, irrigating the deserts. All of these accomplishments are just really quite extraordinary. And so, you know, one can compare humans with other animals. And certainly when it comes to our physical characteristics, it's easy to see how physically we might have evolved, comparatively easy to see how we might have evolved from other species. But there seems to be a bit of a gap between our intellectual capabilities and, and those of other animals. And over the years, as researchers like myself who studied comparative cognition have investigated the cognitive abilities of other animals, that gap has not sort of gone away. It's, it's actually cemented. And we have to then come up with a means of sort of bridging that gap, a, a scientific explanation for how humans came to be such an extraordinary species. It seems that the, the, the crux of your book, without wanting to give away, you know, sp I mean, spoiler alert here, everybody, but it seems to me that the, the key argument here is that humans haven't just evolved and that's given rise to culture, but that culture has fed back into our evolution and shaped our evolution itself. Have, have I got that right? Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. I, I mean, the suggestion that I'm making, and, and I make it, but um, I can emphasize that this, I think, is a, a view which is emerging as a con consensus within the field, that human minds are not just products of biological evolution that have been fashioned for culture, that they're actually fashioned by culture, that our culture, perhaps for our species, and, and maybe one or two other species too, culture has transformed the evolutionary process. Kevin's argument then is that the differences between human and animal intelligence may come, at least in part, from the way in which culture has played a role in development. Sounds from, from even humans. A huge chunk of evidence for this theory comes by looking not to humans, but to other animals, exploring their intellectual abilities and their cultural capabilities. Yes, other animals do have culture. Of course, it depends on how you want to define culture, but certainly they will uh, acquire knowledge and skills from other individuals, and these skills will spread through their populations. There are some features of human culture that we think are quite distinct, such as um, you know, it, it, this capacity to sort of ratchet up in complexity and, and diversity as we see associated with human technology, for instance. And I think there's a moral dimension um, and, a, and a symbolic dimension to human culture, which we don't tend to see so much in, in other animals. But if we, if we strip culture down to its bare bones, the 
transmission of learned information. Then certainly we see that in many other animals. And you're absolutely right. We can see many other very impressive feats of cognition in other animals. I mean, the, the history of my field is littered with uh, discarded hypotheses that begin, um, you know, humans are the only species that, you know, humans are the only species that use tools or make tools or that have episodic memory. There are, there are a very long list of these. And that tends not to be the case. Those kind of explanations fall as we discover other animals that are capable of doing these things. If, on the other hand, you were to make an argument along the lines of humans are extraordinary in their capacity to do X, then you can see many pieces of data that are consistent with that. I mean, uh, many animals can communicate, in including communicate some quite complex messages. But there's nothing even approaching the complexity of human language, the symbol symbolically structured, organized, uh, uh, grammatically structured um, language that we see in humans and the sheer flexibility that our language affords. We can see other animals building structures in their environments, their nests, their bowers, their burrows and so forth, their mounds. But, you know, no bird ever deviated from building a, a nest or a bower. And, you know, no spider ever you know, deviated from spinning a web. Whereas humans just build an extraordinary diversity of, of artifacts and, and constructions that, that are mind-boggling in their, in their diversity. And so in lots of these respects, we can see very impressive feats by animals, which we can understand as adaptations to the particular worlds in which they live. But humans just seem off the scale with, re with respect to the, the breadth and flexibility of their behavior. Hi, Diana. How are you doing? But as Kevin points out, this apparent line between humans and other animals has seen a blurring in recent times. This is Professor Diana Reese. I'm Diana Reese. I'm a professor of psychology at Hunter College in New York City, and I'm the director of the Animal Behavior and Conservation Master's Program there. I spoke with Diana down the line and started by asking her about how our understanding of animal intelligence has changed in recent decades. Well, I think the question was, do other animals think? And I think the, the questions now change to how do they think? It's not a matter of if they do, but how, in what ways do they think? And I think that's a very different question. You've done a lot of work with dolphins and other cetaceans. What has your own work revealed about what they think and their intelligence, or how they think? Perhaps should be a better way of putting it. Yeah. Well, first of all, dolphins are thinkers like, you know, other animals in the animal world. But again, they've evolved so so differently than we have. They've come from a completely different environment. They have large, complex brains like we do. They're highly social like we are. They have what's called a fusion-fission society where they have friends, they have alliances, they come apart, they come together, they work cooperatively. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's very similar to what we do, what elephants do, what apes do, uh, and a few other species. Yet, you know, looking at dolphin intelligence, we shouldn't just be looking through our very human primate eyes. And what I've tried to do in my work is try to see as much as I can about their intelligence by giving them things that they can interact with and to see what they do with it. 
and it's given us some real insights. For example, many years ago, uh, we did a study showing dolphins recognize themselves in mirrors. We knew that apes could. We thought it was uniquely human to us primates and apes. And then we, we, we realized that if you provide a dolphin with a mirror, we did this later with elephants as well, um, that they do many of the same behaviors in front of the mirror we do, and they show the same progression of stages. So that was an exciting finding. I've worked other ways where we've given dolphins underwater keyboards, and now we're providing them with a much more advanced touchscreen where we can say, what happens if we give you choice and control over a system? It's a very different question than saying, what happens if we train them to do particular things? This is saying it's in your hands, or so to speak, with dolphins, it's in your flippers or your <laughs> to show us what you can do. And I've been delighted to, to watch them and thrilled to see what they do when we don't control it. They're in control. So, for example, the dolphins, in interacting with this keyboard we did many years ago, with an underwater keyboard, they could use a key, a visual key, to get and they would hear, they could use it if they touched a visual key uh, with the front of their rostrum, that's the pointy part of their, their face, they would hear a computer-generated sound, they would get an object or an activity. And these were things we selected that we thought they would like. And they started to imitate the sounds spontaneously, very rapidly, and with great fidelity. They were terrific at this. These animals have huge acoustic processors, so we knew they were sophisticated. We knew they were vocal learners, but we were actually able to learn a lot about how they learn vocally, and they started to make associations on their own between the visual forms, the sounds they were hearing, and the objects. It was very reminiscent of what we see when children are first acquiring uh, new words, even when it, it's not yet necessarily functioning as a full-blown word, symbolically, it was very similar in the patterns we saw. So that was very exciting. They showed self-organized learning. Amy! <coughs> Amy! <coughs> Last week, researchers revealed that orcas can mimic human speech. One, two. <coughs> How surprising was that? How does that tie in with this? I actually wasn't surprised at all. I was very happy to read that. I thought that was a wonderful study. But we know that orcas and beluga whales and dolphins, these are all cetaceans, are vocal mimickers. They learn their vocal repertoires by imitating what others do. Sometimes they imitate what we call non-conspecific sounds. That means sounds that are not part of their own species, um, but they have a lot of vocal flexibility. What was lovely about this study was that it really showed the flexibility and range of what they could imitate. So they heard, they were trained previously to copy, to, to, the ter to understand copy, so imitate behavior. And um, the researchers extended that to, when they, to giving them sounds, and they, they were able to imitate these sounds quite well. Uh, even sounds that were similar to human speech sounds. And again, they have very different phonation systems than we do. So to see that they weren't doing exact imitations because it would be like us asking that, us to imitate another species exactly. But they did pretty good matches uh, to some of the uh, parameters of human speech. 
so that was that extended our understanding again of their vocal capabilities. It's a study that I wrote about for The Guardian, and this orca talk has managed to grab the world's imagination. But, as pointed out by Diana, it really was nothing more than vocal mimicry. To acquire knowledge and skills from other individuals, social learning. Whilst copying may seem like a somewhat lesser cognitive ability, as explained by Kevin, it was a crucial step in our own and other animals' evolutionary path. Copying seems to be a really important sort of facet of the book here you know, in terms of how animals copy the behaviour of those around them and, and how that helps them to, to survive. Just talk me through why copying is not as simple as it sounds. I mean, you talk about this one particular computer game where you tried to look to see whether innovating was more important than copying and it seemed copying was actually the, the key strategy. So just talk me through why copying is so important. Okay, well, there's an awful lot to that question. So let, let me begin with the, the question of, um, you know, why copying is, is central to my thesis. And um, that really comes back to this issue of how we understand human success. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we flourish in all kinds of different environments and our capability to do so is not so much based on our intelligence as our culture. It's our culture, in effect, in effect makes us smart. We are reliant on long-acquired cultural knowledge in order to thrive in these, in these challenging worlds. And if we want to understand how that cultural knowledge has accrued, we can investigate experimentally, we can study it historically, and we see two things going on iteratively. We see repeated copying of existing technology and innovation on that theme, copying and innovation, copying and innovation repeatedly. So it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, if we want to understand the evolution of the extraordinary human capacity for culture, the capability that to my mind to more, more than anything else explains our success as a species, to study the copying and innovation of other animals. Now, when we look at other animals, we see quite widespread copying. This is not something that's restricted to large-brained animals or animals that we think are intelligent. We see copying now in, in fruit flies, in, in wood crickets, in ants, in bees. Of course, some of the most celebrated examples of copying are in um, you know large-brained vertebrates such as uh, cetaceans, whales, and dolphins, and and primates. I guess most uh, people know about the distinctive cultural traditions that you find in chimpanzees, where if you go to different regions uh, throughout Africa, um, you'll find quite distinctive behavioral repertoires, which we can think of as a bit like human cultures. In each case. Little guys are learning the local behavioral repertoire through observing the behavior of more experienced individuals. And they learn things like, you know, um, termiting, fishing for termites using storks or um, cracking nuts with, uh, with, with a stone hammer. Uh, and these patterns of behavior are found in some populations, not others. So there's variation between populations, um, very s similar in, in, in many respects to human culture. We see traditions in, in birds, too. Um, you'll be familiar, of course, with 
but song and, and dialects um, which are maintained and, and transmitted as, as socially transmitted learned patterns of behavior. But we also see foraging behaviors being transmitted through animal populations. The most famous example is the pecking open of the uh, foil tops of milk bottles. Um, which began in, in um, Swathling near Southampton in the 1920s, can you believe, and actually spread throughout Britain over a long period of time, several decades, and actually into several countries in Europe. Um, most of the time when animals um, transmit knowledge, it's usually, it's, it, it's more often than not foraging information which is being transmitted food processing skills, for instance, or no novel dietary preferences. But we also see some really quite extraordinary social conventions. Um, one which is really fascinating is observed in these white-faced capuchin monkeys in, in, in Costa Rica, where there are particular troops that have these amazing conventions where individual monkeys would sit for long periods of time with their hands in each other's mouths or their fingers up each other's noses, or even their fingers up to their knuckles into the eye sockets of other monkeys. And sometimes they'll just sit there for a long time, sort of swaying gently. And this is, this is thought to be, to function, to test the, the strength of the social bonds. So really uh, uh, amazing pieces of natural history which show the copying is widespread, the animals acquire all kinds of valuable skills that, that, that way, what to eat, where to find it, how to process it, how to move through their environment, you know, what a predator looks like, they can learn to recognize predators that way, how to escape predators, all this kind of information is very widely transmitted through animal populations. So whilst copying was an essential step, the wide array of examples found in the animal kingdom mean it's not the singular trait that made our ancestors flourish. But what was it then? It's a question we'll attempt to answer after this short break, when we explore a theory known as cultural drive. She's the idea that uh, social learning and innovation have been driving brain evolution. And we'll also hear about another crucial and equally mysterious step in our evolutionary past, the invention of human language. The problem is rather the opposite. We've got too many <laughs> hypotheses and not enough hard data with which to kind of constrain them and discipline them. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Start, a brand new weekly podcast from The Guardian. Without those kind of engaging with reality, I will not become I will be today. Each episode reveals a story of artistic beginnings, as told by some of the great artists of our time. For me, Scandalicious, so much of that was also about me finding my way. Focusing on one piece, they share how these early moments of creativity shaped them, the influence it had on their subsequent work, and what the piece now means to them in retrospect. The most I've ever seen in any room, you know, looking at any kind of art, was in Mr. Barnes's two rooms. To find out more, head over to theguardian.com slash podcasts or search The Start on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to Science Weekly. I'm Nicola Davis. Before the break, we heard from Kevin Leyland about a theory of the origins of human intelligence, 
as laid out in his new book, Darwin's Unfinished Symphony. We also heard from Diana Rees about how our perception of intelligence in other animals, including cetaceans, has changed drastically over time, meaning that the lines that divide humans from other animals may be more blurred than we like to think. Why is it that they seem to... That said, as Kevin pointed out, the levels of intelligence and culture found in humans is unlike anything else we see in the animal kingdom. But what might have led to our own runaway success? Well, I think there's been a feedback process operating, which we, we in fact refer to as, as cultural drive, which is the idea that uh, social learning and innovation have been driving brain evolution. Now, let me come back and answer your question and, and first of all say a little bit about innovation because that's a, a, a kind of important part of the, of the story here. I've mentioned um, copying, but animals also invent novel um, patterns of behavior. Let me uh, give you a, a couple of examples. So there's this one case of these, of these Japanese crows that have invented this behavior of using cars as nutcrackers. They feed on these nuts, which have got shells, which are too tough for them to break in their, in their beaks. So they put the nuts on the road, cars run them over, and then they go and retrieve the nuts. That's, that's a behavioral innovation. Very canny. <laughs> yeah. and, there are, and, and there are many of these innovations. So there, there have been lovely studies of innovations in birds in particular. The, uh, one of my favorites is the, are these carob grackles in, in Barbados that, um, that have started hanging out in the vicinity of these open-air cafes and uh, dunking their food in the dregs of tea and coffee. I, I like this because I was always told off by my parents for dunking my biscuits <laughs> in my tea, and I see these birds doing, doing the same thing. <laughs> but what's interesting is that, uh, I mean, the, each one of these kind of examples sounds like an anecdote, but we can, we can allocate um, these examples to species and count up how much innovating each species is doing, and we find differences between species in how much innovation goes on. And when we do something like plot the innovativeness of the species against their brain size, we see something interesting. We see a positive relationship. So big-brained species of birds are more innovative than small-brained species of birds. And I remember seeing uh, this study, which was carried out by researchers in Canada, and being very excited by it. And, uh, of course, that relationship need not be causal, but it raised the idea in my mind that perhaps innovativeness was really central to brain evolution, and, and maybe that applied more broadly than just to birds. So together with my students, we started collecting reports of innovation in non-human primates. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples of those. Uh, so again, one of my favorites is um, Mike, who is one of Jane Goodall's chimpanzees, who invented this habit of banging together two empty kerosene cans to augment his dominance display. And this coincided with him shooting up the dominance rankings to alpha male in, in record time. Very, very impressive. And uh, you know, we compiled a big database of several hundred um, examples of primate innovation. And at the same time, we collected reports of social learning. And we looked to see, do we get the same patterns as it was observed in birds? Do we, do we see they co-vary with, with brain size? And we found that they did. Yes, they did. Big brain species of primates are more innovative and more reliant on social learning than small brain species of primates. This 
result is very robust to all kinds of potential confounding factors which we can take account of. So it really does seem like a robust finding. This leads on to the next step in the story where we, we say, well, how should we interpret this? Um, what, what does this mean? And there was an idea in the literature called uh, cultural drive, which had suggested that um, the ability to innovate and copy would give individuals a, a, an advantage in the struggle to survive. And assuming these abilities had some basis in, in neural substrate, this would generate selection for those regions of the brain. And this would feed back to further enhance the accuracy and efficiency of, of copying in a kind of feedback loop that the author envisaged had climaxed in our species, humanity, who are the most innovative, the most culturally reliant species with the largest brains. So in that case, it's the case of more, the more innovative you are, the better you're able to survive and produce offspring who will then, you know, be even bigger brained and, and, and so on and so forth. That's the basic yeah. argument, although we've subsequently realised it's, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit more, more complicated than that. But yes, there's a, there's a kind of feedback process yeah. that's, that's operating. Uh, we since realized that it's not simply a question of selection for more and more social learning because, as I've mentioned, you know, we, we know that fruit flies mm. or you know, crickets or bees can copy with tiny, tiny brains. Um, so it's not at all clear why um, simply selecting for more copying would require the large brains, proportionally large brains that we see in non-human primates. What I think is going on, and, and this suggestion draws from theoretical work that we've done, is that we're seeing selection for more efficient, more effective, more strategic forms of copying that only incidentally are manifest in greater amounts of copying. So, is this where so it's not just outright copying per se, but how animals, including us, choose to copy that seems to matter. Animals don't just copy at every opportunity. They don't just copy the first individual they see. They copy highly selectively, highly strategically, according to rules that are to some extent um, predictable and actually, you know, are very intuitive. They make, they make a lot of sense when we've done experiments with humans and the humans are the same. If you give uh, human beings a task and they struggle to complete that task and then they're given information about how other human beings are solving the task, then they don't just copy any individual. They'll look to who's doing it best, and they'll copy the one who's doing it best. And animals are, are following these kind of rules, copy the most successful, um, conform to the majority behavior. There's a strategic quality to their copying. And we think that selection has fashioned that capability to use information in that savvy way. And so getting to the nub here, what happened in humans is different to, to other animals. So animals can have this highly selective copying they can say that that's the dude we want to copy over there so what was different about humans so i i i envisage this um cultural drive hypothesis is is operating widely uh, uh, across the primates and um was particularly important in the evolution of large brains and complex cognition of the apes that's not to suggest it's the only factor that influenced um brain evolution we know that diet is important we know that sociality is important but I don't think we can understand the, the, the complex cognition that we see in the apes without some recourse to a, a cultural intelligence hypothesis. But then, of course, that then you know, raises a supplementary question, which you're, which you're pushing me to answer, which is, you know, if cultural drivers operated across the apes, then you know, why haven't chimpanzees put other chimpanzees on the moon? You know, why haven't 
gorillas invented Facebook? And the answer that I give to that is that other species never evolved sufficiently accurate, high-fidelity forms of information transmission, which is critical for culture to ratchet up. The reason I think that is we've done uh, theoretical analyses using mathematical models to explore um, the evolution of social learning and the evolutionary consequences of social learning. And what these theoretical studies tell us is there's a crucial role for the fidelity of information transmission. That's the accuracy with which information is being passed from a, from a demonstrating individual to a receiving or observing individual. And we find that as fidelity increases, it means, first of all, that traits stay around in the population for longer. And as a knock-on consequence of that, that we find more cultural traits in those populations. And as a third consequence, that we start to see refinements or improvements of that technology. It's really hard to get cumulative culture, culture that ratchets up in complexity without high fidelity information transmission. Fidelity is the key to cumulative culture. So what I think has gone on is that there's a sort of threshold level of fidelity. Only humans have passed that threshold. That's why we, only we have this capacity for cumulative culture. According to Kevin's theory then, it's this high fidelity transfer of information and the ability to refine and improve it over time that means it's only us humans who experience this kind of cumulative culture. According to Leyland, a huge part of this ability came with our ancestors' choice to teach, which allowed high fidelity knowledge to be retained and refined from generation to generation. Was that in this cumulative culture? And it's here that we come to another big and mysterious piece of this puzzle, the invention of language. I mean, this is one of the uh, domains, I should say, of, of uh, this field of investigation that uh, uh, where there is no consensus, I think, amongst, uh, amongst the community. There, there are many, many hypotheses for why language originally evolved um, and, and little agreement as to what, what the answer is. Um, you know, things like language evolved to facilitate communication between mother and child or um, to gossip about other individuals as a substitute for grooming, as a tool for thought. There's no shortage of hypotheses. In fact, the problem is rather the opposite. We've got too many <laughs> hypotheses and not enough hard data with which to kind of constrain them and discipline them, which is, you know, which is... Not surprising, really, because you know language is not the kind of trait that shows up in the fossil record, and it only evolved once. So it, these singularities are hard for evolutionary biologists to study. So in order to try and impose some discipline on this exercise, um, you know, building on uh, many, many other researchers, my colleagues and I came up with a list of criteria that a that a good theory of the origins of language would would meet. Things like, just to give you an example. Um, a good theory of the origin of language would not only explain why language evolved in our lineage, but why it didn't evolve in any other lineage. So if you, if you adhere to the hypothesis, say, that you know, language evolved to facilitate bonding between mothers and child, that seems to sort of fail the test. That's rather beg the question. Yeah, or why, well, yeah. why wouldn't that also help chimpanzees or, mm. or gorillas? So what we can do is we can, you know, come up with a whole series of, of criteria along these lines and then apply all the hypotheses in the literature to those criteria. 
And to my mind, there's only one hypothesis that meets all the criteria, and that's the hypothesis that language originally evolved to teach, to teach cultural knowledge to, um, to close relatives. And so uh, just sort of following that up, uh, uh, what came first? Are we in the ultimate chicken and egg here where you're like, w- w- what came first, cumulative culture or, or language by which to teach it? We, we are in a, in a chicken and egg um, situation, but I think we shouldn't be surprised or threatened by that, that what we're talking about is feedback. We're talking about a scenario in which there's selective feedback, our cultural capabilities fed back to influence the characteristics of our brain and cognition, which which further enhanced our capacity to modify and control aspects of our physical environment, which modified our social environment, which fed back to influence our capacity to learn, our ability to use language, and so on and so forth. We're familiar with these kinds of uh, co-evolutionary scenarios. They're not exceptional in nature. We see this in, for instance, sexual selection, where traits and preferences can co-evolve in the same species. We see this in interspecies evolution, where one species can drive the evolution of another. So the feedbacks are not a problem. What makes it tricky is that when we want to try and understand something like language, it's hard to do so without also investigating other things like teaching and cumulative culture and social learning and so on and so forth. So according to Kevin's hypothesis, this complex web of copying, innovation, teaching and language all came together under this broad umbrella theory of cultural drive. As we became better at communicating, retaining, and building on our cultural knowledge, so the theory goes, the neural components that allowed us to copy, innovate, and communicate developed over time. It's an attractive theory, and one that would appear to be grounded in experimental and theoretical evidence, work done by Kevin, his colleagues, and other scientists around the world. That said, as Kevin alluded to early on, these kinds of behaviours do not fossilise, and there are other theories out there, including that sharing food, a change in diet, and a shift in metabolic rate might have been important in allowing the human brain to grow and help us develop our culture. With that in mind, just how sure can we be that the cultural drive hypothesis isn't something of a just-so story. I think there's good reason for being uh, sceptical about evolutionary arguments that have been put forward for aspects of human behaviour and cognition because it's very easy to find yourself telling stories. And um, so I think a a certain amount of scepticism is very healthy in this field. But... It would be going too far to suggest that uh, we can't do rigorous science in in these kind of areas. We can apply all the tools of evolutionary biology. We can carry out experiments uh, across a number of different species of animals. We can develop mathematical models to explore the evolution of particular traits. We can carry out comparative statistical analyses that control for phylogeny and look to see how and when particular traits evolved and which, which characters co-evolved with them. So there are, there are a number of rigorous methods that, c- that can be brought to bear. And the ideas that I present in my book are, um, are not something that we've come up with, uh, you know, on the fly. <laughs> they are the, the products of uh, 30 years of research by myself 
uh, and, and the members of my my laboratory combined with uh, you know many many insights from other researchers working in the same field and, and you know we we carry out all these experiments we do all, do all these analyses and then we look at that pool data and say you know what's it telling us special thanks this week to Kevin Leyland and Diana Reese if you want to find out more We'll include a link to Kevin's book in the episode's description on the Guardian website. We'll also include a link to my recent article about orcas mimicking human words. If you've got any questions, queries or feedback, please get in touch via our email address, scienceweekly at theguardian.com. I'm Nicola Davis. This is Science Weekly. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.